If you would, open in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. We're looking at two verses this morning in our ongoing series. What it means to be a healthy church. It's what we're going to be looking at for several weeks now. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for anything good. Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that you would change our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit through the truth of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, we've been going through a series on uh, what it means to be a healthy church, and so we've gotten to the point where we need to do a little diagnosing, right? What is it to be healthy and what is it to be unhealthy? This week I had a conversation with Bobby Skerritt. Bobby Skerritt is a physician in our church, and I said, what was it like when you went to med school? She said, the first year we spent the entire time learning what a normal, healthy body looked like, the, uh, the biology of it, the anatomy of it. And then the second year we spent our entire year looking what a diseased body looks like now that we've seen both what a normal body and a diseased body looks like we can are better able at diagnosing what somebody's health is we're going to do something similar today we find that in verses 15 and 16 the healthy church or the healthy church member is described as pure and the unhealthy church or the unhealthy church member is described as defiled To the pure, all things are pure. To the defiled, it's interesting, it doesn't say all things are defiled, but nothing is pure. And the point is, either you have a diseased body or a healthy body, you don't have an in-between body. And so let's go ahead and take a look at that. And we find that when we look at what it means to have a diseased body, that the problem is not an external problem. You have certain symptoms that come out externally, but there's an internal problem that that is the disease. And we, if you're like me, as you get older, it seems like uh, the older I get, the more blood they take, right? You know, they're trying to figure out what's going on uh, inside. Uh, What's your your, uh, pancreas doing? What's your thyroid doing? They're looking at all the different... Uh, hormones, the hormone levels to find out are you healthy or not healthy because that's really what good health is about, what's going on internally in your body. And in the same way, spiritually, uh, what's going on in terms of how we're wired, how we tick, what our nature is. And we find here that, uh, according to verse 15, that those who are unhealthy, their minds are defiled. The Bible talks about the mind of sinful man or those with a sinful nature as being hostile to God. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. 
And in fact, the bad news is we all come into this world diseased spiritually. Romans chapter 3, 11 and 12 describes that. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 describes it this way. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We have a problem with our mind, with comprehension, with understanding because of our spiritual unhealth and disease. Secondly, we are defiled or unhealthy because of our consciences. Verse 15 again, their consciences are defiled. Now the Bible says that all people have a conscience. We read of this in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter whether you're a Christian, it doesn't matter whether you're an atheist, from Papua New Guinea to Panama City, we've all got a conscience. Every single person has been given that by God. And the conscience is a governor of sorts for our action. My dad, uh, growing up, was a landscaper and he had a big truck, one of his big trucks, uh, the, the workers affectionately called Big Mama. And Big Mama had a governor on the engine that would prevent unwise employees from going too fast, right? Would go to a certain speed limit and no further. And the conscience sort of works that way in that when we begin to violate God's moral standards, what happens is you get beeps and chirps and alarms. Now you can move right past that speed limit You're warned, um, and that is what, in fact, happens. The Bible calls this having a seared conscience, that we have a conscience, but we can suppress the truth of God's moral law. We read that again, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible qualities, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Right? doesn't matter who you are. If you're here with us today, sort of investigating Christianity, or maybe somebody dragged you here to church, you know, and guilted you into it. If you're here today and you're thinking... Uh, What does this have to do with me? Well, the Bible says that God has put into your life a conscience, right? Uh, He's shown something of who he is through the creation and a basic understanding of right and wrong. But the problem is that we suppress the truth of God. And it's ultimately not simply a problem of do's and don'ts. It's a problem that we have with God. So what is that process of our conscience being seared? You know, I used to grow up 
Saturday morning like you and watch cartoons. And I remember one of these cartoons that would have, you know, the character would have uh, a, little, a little devil on one shoulder and a little angel on the other shoulder. And they would be whispering uh, conflicting things into to, to the cartoon character's ears. Remember that? You know, do this. No, don't do that. Do this. No, don't do that. And then finally, the, the angel would go poof and disappear. And uh, the demon would be left there to, to whisper in your ears. That's partly what's going on, but it actually is worse than that. It's like you take that little demon off your shoulder and you dress the demon up in angel clothes. Right? That's when, you're, that's when you really get to the point of having your conscience seared, where you're saying that uh, what really is bad is actually good. I was thinking of this sermon and thinking of that reality um, in connection with um, the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, uh, the Supreme Court decision 46 years ago, estimated 61 million innocent lives taken since Roe v. Wade. Um, in, in our culture, in our communication, we've got politicians that's, that have, were in support of uh, Roe v. Wade who would say that uh, we want abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. And now that's not enough. Uh, rare is too negative. Uh, instead, we must say abortion should be celebrated. Now, why is that? Seared consciences. Now, lest you accuse me of uh, favoritism, I will be an equal opportunity offender this morning, as I was uh, before the, the last election, uh, preached it from the pulpit in our now being rebuilt church. And I said there was at a presidential uh, debate, uh, it seemed like every uh, member of the panel uh, were seeking to outdo the other in terms of being pro-torture. And as I said, torture is not a biblical uh, ethic, right? Why pro-torture? Seared consciences. And it's not just D.C., it's P.C., Panama City, right? It's not just those guys out there in D.C., Everybody, every human being grapples with this uh, aspect of our conscience. So the description of an unhealthy person is somebody who has a defiled conscience and mind. So how is it that we diagnose a healthy body? Well, you know, the, the verses today really spend a lot of time talking about what it looks like to have an unhealthy uh, spiritual nature, but we see implicit, we see here what it means to have a healthy spiritual body as well. We see this healthy, the healthy are believers, that is, they have faith in Jesus Christ. One of the descriptions of those who are defiled in verse 15 is they are unbelieving. And the question is, unbelieving of what? It's not simply enough to believe in anything. You know, there are people who say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in something. You can believe in uh, Jesus or Muhammad or Buddha or in science or your pet rock or your spouse or your girlfriend or your boyfriend, you know, whatever, whatever you believe in. And as we found out, actually, over the last couple of weeks, that's certainly not the case. There was a, a body of truth. There was teaching 
that the Apostle Paul said that, in fact, the, the leaders, the elders of the church, uh, must be able to stand for and combat those who oppose to it. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. And we find this word uh, faith, pistis is the Greek, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. Chapter 1, verse 4. Titus 1, verse 9. He must hold, that is the elder, must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, so that they may be able to give instruction on sound or healthy doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And then in verse 13, this testimony is true. Therefore, Titus, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound or healthy in faith, in pistis. So a, a sound or healthy doctrine leads to a healthy faith. And to the pure, all things are pure, but to the undefiled, but to the defiled and unbelieving, apistos, nothing is pure. He's spoken of a particular faith, a particular focus, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And he said, if you do not have that faith, if you lack that faith, that you are defiled. So again, pointedly, what is that faith? The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The righteousness of God, Romans 3.22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Now these passages presuppose that there was a teaching that the way that we're right in God's sight is by earning our way back into God's good graces by being good enough, by working for it, by following the law, which is a good thing. The law is good. And the Apostle Paul said, no, the, the good news of Jesus Christ is that you cannot earn your way back into God's good graces. That's bad news, but the good news is that Jesus did it for you and his perfect life lived for you in his death on the cross and taking the punishment that you deserve. You simply reach out your hand by faith and grab a hold of Jesus Christ and trust in him before God to be right in his sight. Now, there are lots of teachings out there, and the teaching evidently here in Crete, where uh, Titus was, was some of the law, some of the Old Testament law. And um, we find later on that talks about genealogies. So there was this sort of law, these stories that had come up, these, these Jewish fables. Um, and this amalgamation of ascetic principles. And specifically, we, hear, we see here this, um, this description of defiled, this description of pure, this language is Old Testament language that's associated with food laws, right? The Old Testament food laws, we call them kosher, right? The, uh, you're supposed to eat this, you're not supposed to eat that. And evidently, these teachers taught that you can be clean and pure in God's sight if you follow these and some other things that we make up. And we want you to be like us. If you, if you follow these ascetic principles, uh, then you will be pure. And the Apostle Paul says, no, 
That's not how you become clean. That's not how you become pure. And we sort of can understand that a little bit in our culture. We have clean food, right? We have food that is organic and there are no pesticides and free range. You know, we call it clean. And even things that we serve food in, you know, a styrofoam cup is not good. And there are other things that are not good. And there are some animals and food that are cleaner than other animals and better than other animals. And so we sort of have these laws in our society, these, these principles about food. But this was specifically, if you eat in a certain way, if you follow these certain principles, then in God's sight, you will be clean. And the Apostle Paul says, no, you're defiled. Those things will not make you clean. The Old Testament laws about food were simply there as a reminder to the Jews that one day somebody would come and make them truly clean within. So Jesus Christ said in Mark chapter 7, Then you also without, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus said to his apostles in John 15, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. The Apostle Paul says of those teaching these false things to the residents of Crete, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the church. So pointedly, the healthy church looks like this. It's made up of pure people, that is, people that have turned from their spiritual disease and place their faith in Jesus Christ. That's what makes them healthy. And we see this Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Get that? How do you have your conscience clean? How do you have your heart sprinkled with pure water, purified? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. And so when you place your faith in Jesus Christ and not in yourself and not some other principle or philosophy but in the person of Jesus and what he's done you're pure in this sense number one you're forgiven and so in God's sight you're pure you're seen as having the purity of Jesus in his sight in God's sight even though we continue to sin because Jesus is perfect and we trust in him as our representative. So we've got a clean record, but the other thing is we're also given a new heart. We're given a changed nature. So we're pure, we're forgiven, but we're also given 
a new heart. And we'll cover this a little later in Titus, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, but a little preview. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we've been washed, we've been renewed by the Spirit of God. Ezekiel prophesied of this. He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So here's the irony of those who are teaching those in Crete to be pure by following these purity rules that they had absolutely no ability to cause them to be pure and clean. They had no ability. They weren't giving them ability, nor did the teachers have the ability because they were still diseased. And they were preaching and teaching something that would never solve the problem of spiritual unhealth. The healthy one is one that has been purified by faith in Jesus Christ and his law keeping. And as a result, we are then able more and more to live for him and keep the law ourselves. Not to earn God's approval, but because we already have it. So healthy believers are able to lead lives of health. And the outcome of the healthy spiritual life is good works, right? So you've got a mind problem, you've got a conscience problem, and you believe in Jesus Christ, and associated with Jesus is this regenerating, renewal, cleansing by the Spirit, and you are now able to live for Him in a way that you could not before. Listen to Titus chapter 1, 16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the blood work has come in. They've checked out your spiritual thyroid and your spiritual pancreas. Everything's working great, right? So you are healthy and are able to live for him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And these false teachers that were teaching in Crete were doing nothing more than just taking on the culture around them. They were consumed by the culture around them. They were like the culture around them. And so they were not teaching something different than the culture around them, but instead they were consistent with the culture around them, even though it appeared that they were different. The immorality, the unhealthiness of, the, of Crete, the Isle of Crete, was renowned. Last week, Keith that Heath uh, spoke of the 5th, 6th century um, Cretan by the name of Epinetes. Um, and uh, that was centuries before the Apostle Paul, but the statement was still known. Verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This wasn't the only way that they were known, just from this one uh, particular thing. Did, one of the interesting things was there was actually a word in the Greek. They took the noun for Greek, for Crete, and they made it into a verb. 
The verb for Crete was liar. So if you called somebody a liar, you know, you use the verb for the noun Crete. How'd you, how'd you like to, you know, the Americans, if they said Americanize means you're a bunch of liars. That's essentially what happened. It became synonymous with Crete. One commentator said, one of the aspects of Cretan immorality was that they were known for their greed. Uh, for instance, Cicero said, the Cretans consider piracy honorable. Any way you could make money was good. The Apostle Paul describes them as evil beasts in chapter 12. That's ironic. One commentator writes this, Crete was famous for not having any wild beasts. So there's no wild beasts on Crete. Uh, this reference to the Cretans being evil beasts creates a powerful twist in the same. While most countries had to deal with wild beasts in Crete, the same problem was posed by people who, in the absence of wild animals, assumed the role themselves. Right? The Cretans were wild animals. So why was it that the false teachers were teaching what they were teaching? 1 Timothy 1.11 they must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Anything they could do to make some money, no problem with that on the Isle of Crete. So what's the sign of a healthy church? You know, I went on the internet. If you, if you go on the internet and look, what is a healthy church? What are signs of a healthy church? You have multiple websites. Here's one set, website said, a healthy church produces new leaders. A healthy church helps members crave meat, not milk. A healthy church devotes itself to prayer. A healthy church has members who serve with joy. A healthy church has members who resolve, inter, resolve interpersonal conflict in a healthy way. A healthy church is made up of people who appreciate the past but look forward to the future. And on and on it goes. And these are all good things. The Apostle Paul makes it pretty simple. A healthy church is a church that produces good works. Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Titus chapter 2.14, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous. For good works. See the difference? If something's happened internally to you and you're healthy, you'll begin to produce good works. So there's hope for the Cretans. There was hope for them, and there's hope for you. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul said, Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. I believe he wasn't talking about the false teachers, he was talking about the, the people there in Crete that were. Susceptible to being led astray. Their faith needs to remain sound, and the only way to have a sound or healthy faith <clears throat> is to be rebuked. Don't listen to this. Listen instead to this healthy message that will lead to health in your life. The Cretans lived in this debased society filled with lying and greed, <clears throat> and yet the Apostle Paul said, they can be healthy. They can live healthy lives. They are able to do it because the Spirit of God is at work in them. <clears throat> we have a society filled with greed and discontentment, uh, lying 
You can add to that sexual sin. Uh, we've got, for instance, sexting and porn rampant in our society. We've got unwholesome and corrupting talk. Unhealthy talk, unhelpful talk, I think is rampant in our society. You can add some other things to that list as well. And it's easy just to think, is there any hope? Is there any hope for our society? Is there any hope for us? We're around all this stuff that is presented as normal. And the answer is, absolutely, there's hope. Just like in Crete, the Apostle Paul says, you can have a sound faith. It can demonstrate itself in good works. We are fit for good works. We are found to be pure, just like we had a blood test that said, the results are in. And you are healthy. So some of the takeaways are this. Number one, listen to the gospel. Listen to the good news of Jesus Christ. He is your Savior. Cling to him by faith. Do not trust in your own supposed goodness. Do not trust in some plan out there that's supposed to give you the full life. There are many, many plans, many ways that people think that they're going to achieve some kind of full life. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone and what he has done for you. Secondly, what we've seen to date in Titus is leaders, elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, you need to be prepared to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying is the number one remedy. Jesus and him alone, faith in him, trust in him, that is what brings health. Not trusting in myself, not trusting in anything else but in Jesus. And then thirdly, we must teach what is good. We must teach what is right. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we read, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We do live in a society where... What is wrong is portrayed as good and right. And so we need to communicate. We need to read the scripture. We need to listen to teaching that communicates accurately what the Bible says. Don't be cocky about the fact that you're healthy, okay? So I don't want to overemphasize this. Um, You've got a long way to go. I've got a long way to go. We're not perfect. You know, the Apostle Paul himself in Romans... Uh, chapter 7 said, uh, so I find this law at work when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, says the Apostle Paul. He understood personally The challenge of living this out, that there are going to be times when you'll be tempted and tried and challenged and even fall into sin. And the the Christian life is not a life of you believe in Jesus and immediately you're perfect. That won't happen until you go to be with him or he comes here and returns again. But understand that he who is at work in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so don't be overly uh, optimistic and think that somehow, uh, because what tends to happen is people then tend to pretend that they're better than they are. 
But finally, don't be discouraged either. You know, I'm supposed to be healthy and I fall all the time. I fall into sin all the time. Um, well, if you're saying that, here's one good thing. You still have a conscience, right? And a lack of a conscience is a sign of ill health. So when you fall into sin, go back to Christ. Repent of your sins. Turn to him. Know that you're loved by God. And then live for him in a renewed um, enthusiasm to do good to others. A healthy church, what does it look like? It looks like more and more people knowing Christ, knowing his love, believing in him, trusting in him, and then living out good works in the church, in your families, in the community. I close with a very simple illustration. It's not one of these, you know, uh, climb the highest mountain, cross the ocean, uh, but it's an example of exactly what I'm talking about. My wife, Susan, as some of you know, she had some minor uh, foot surgery a couple of weeks ago. And, um, and so many of you have known and have been praying and, and uh, very encouraging. And, and somebody brought over some food for us. And I texted that person. I said, uh, we ate like royalty. Um, and she texted back, if not royalty, at least loved and appreciated. Said, exactly. That's what it is, right? Loved and appreciated. So that is an example of good health. That's an example of good health in the church. Somebody that knows the love of Jesus Christ, that's experienced that, that knows his grace, and is now giving it to others. That's what it means to be a healthy church, where more and more we are believers in Christ and are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, uh, living and doing good works because of what he's done for us and the love that he's shown to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the truth of your gospel, uh, that uh, there's nothing that we can do. There's no other philosophy that will help us, um, that you have not left us to our own devices that would do no good, but that you have provided Christ for us. And so we do believe, we do trust in you. And we pray, Father, that as you have promised that by your spirit you have renewed us, you've not only forgiven us, but renewed us, that we would um, turn to you and trust in you and that you would help us more and more put sin to death and live for Jesus Christ and express that in good works. And that we would, as a church, as individuals, be healthy and become those that more and more and more exhibit the fruit of that health through good works. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.